Ben. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. You can be seated. Well done. Uh, and today we're going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be starting, or started last week, a series on this book in the New Testament that is obsessed with the concept of joy. Sounds pretty great. I want you to have joy. You want you to have joy. So let's study Philippians together. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn or tap your way. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy of the Bible and a modern English translation for free on your way out uh, if you don't have one. So let's talk about joy and how we get joy. If you've ever really felt it, you agree with me that it's something that you want. The question is, how do you get it? I was surveying, sort of just kind of had this in my head as I'm going through life and saw a couple of different things recently on ways to feel joy that are kind of out there in the world. One is called laugh therapy. I don't know if you've heard about that as a concept. The idea is you want to feel good, laugh. It's like, well, what am I laughing at? No, 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 just laugh. The point is not to hear a joke and laugh. The point is just a ha, 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 and you just keep going. And at some point... I don't know if it's a trick or if it's some sort of physiological connection, but the laughing makes you feel a little bit better. And apparently people have done science on that. You're welcome to try that if you like. My own personal encouragement would be not to try to get people to do that, uh, like in morgues or, you know, police scenes or whatever, like in really hard situations, maybe not the best approach, but you're welcome to try it. We're going to try it right now. You ready? Ha, 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 ha. Did it work? You maybe feel a little bit silly. I don't know. Maybe try it later this week. But maybe not. Not necessarily biblical. Something that's out there. Another one is a really fun commercial I've seen recently where it's a bunch of athletes that are looking fantastic. And they're like shaving, and I don't know if it's a shaving cream commercial or if it's some kind of clothing commercial or whatever. But these dudes, obviously in the prime of life, giant shoulders and really ripped, and they're wearing like nice suits, and they're walking, uh, you know, into the tunnel to get ready for the game or whatever. And the, the guy is speaking, and he says, if you look good, you feel good. If you feel good, you play good. And then it keeps going, and I think that's a quote from a movie. But that's another way to feel good. You want to feel good? Look good. I got a haircut yesterday. Went from slightly longer to slightly shorter. Not a lot changed. <laughs> Don't know that I look good, but I kind of feel good. It was good to get a haircut. It works a little bit. But the biblical concept of joy goes much deeper, of course. It's not laughter without a joke. It's a reason that then produces joy. See, the Christian doesn't seek joy, the Christian seeks Christ and in finding him receives great joy. It's the thing that we've been seeing about all this morning. The message of the gospel creates joy. Our job in this series is to show you that message of the gospel, to, to clearly connect you with that message of the gospel, to remove the kinds of things that become barriers to understanding and applying that gospel so that it erupts in you in a kind of infectious joy, that this becomes a very joyful place to be, that when you go out in the world, the light that you shine to the world is not just morality. It's not just self-discipline, but like electric joy. 
joy even in really hard things. If you were with us last week, Paul is so joyful and he's writing about being joyful while he's in prison. And he's writing to a church that he planted. God sent him there to plant this church. And he immediately, upon getting there, saw like big things happen, fruit, people believing, demons being cast out, and he gets arrested and thrown into a prison. And in a prison, feet in stocks, back opened up because of the beating that he took with a rod. He and his boy Silas are just singing. That's the kind of joy I want you to have. That's the kind of joy he's offering, that Christ is offering, and I want you to see it. So Philippians 1, we're going to start in verse 1 and and get there together. It says, it's a letter. These these letters all begin with this kind of salutation. It's who it is from and who it is to. So here it goes. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, these are the people writing the letter, are writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, real place, you can go find it in Greece, With the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What a powerful sentence. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be Uh, You may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's a ton there, and it's kind of the beginning salvo of the letter. So there's lots of themes here that we'll pick up on as we work our way through when they're addressed in other places. But the the one kind of zoom-in moment I want to do is on verse 6 there. There's a lot of joy in this passage. There's a lot of prayer in this passage. He's praying for them and telling them what he has been praying for them. But he zooms in. We can zoom in on a reason for the joy, a reason for the confidence in his joy. In verse 6 when he says, I'm sure this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's saying that God, the good God who has began a good work in you, is going to bring it to completion. He's not going to stop. He's going to continue. And continuing, he's going to finish. He's going to get there on the day, at the day of Jesus Christ. Christians believe that God does exist and that he's holy. But being holy, he has problems with us in our rebellion toward him. His standard of holiness is love. God's rules don't just go around the way in which you act towards him or speak towards him or speak towards each other. His rules are based on or founded in this initial concept, the most beautiful thing in the world, love. The whole law is summed up in that way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We don't do that. 
And when we don't do that, the Bible calls that sin. Being sinners, we're separated from a holy God. He can't allow it. He can't allow it in his presence. But Christianity preaches that he didn't leave us in our separation from him or leave us in this sort of death march towards destruction. But he came to be with us in the person of Christ. That Jesus, being God, is also a man. And that means he lives a sinless life, but he can live that sinless life on our behalf. That he can die a sinner's death, but being innocent, that sinner's death can be died on our behalf. And so to be a Christian is not to be a person who has achieved a standard of righteousness. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you've achieved a rank in the military. To be a Christian is to simply mean that you have received what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. To become a Christian means that you begin. You begin a process of slowly seeing your life go from being sinful to becoming more and more holy. It's declared holy in Christ when you accept Him by faith. But it slowly becomes more holy as you live a life, slowly seeing the Holy Spirit change you and work in you, that He will complete the work that He has promised to do. And what's wild is that there's this physical deterioration that takes place at the same time as our spiritual upbuilding. On Friday, I spent most of the day in the waiting room at St. Mark's in the surgery center. And the whole time I'm there... I was irritated. I started off feeling, you know, concerned for the person I was there to kind of help out with. But pretty quick after that, I got very concerned for myself. And how long am I going to be in this place? And was the other people around me, uh, why, why are they going to continue to be this irritating uh, in this very small space that we have together? There's a 60-something sort of schlubby guy who's wearing um, house shoes in a hospital He's not the patient. He's there in the waiting room. So he doesn't deserve any pity. He just is wearing house shoes out. And as he would walk, he would shuffle them along and they make a terrible noise. It goes right through your headphones. There was a doctor that would walk through in cowboy boots. And he would have on speakerphone, he would be having a phone conversation on speakerphone. Now that has to violate HIPAA laws or something, but it also violates decency laws. Like, don't do that when you're walking among people. And he would go back and forth, clumping along in his cowboy boots, having this speakerphone conversation. There was another man, businessman, having loud, like, sales arguments. At some point, you start to wonder, is it worse to be in the waiting room or on the table? (laughs) As soon as you wonder that, you know that, you know, it's probably coming pretty soon. Like, physical deterioration is happening. And I have more and more gray hairs in my beard. I said that when I was taking the girls to school the other day. Oh, man, more and more gray hairs in the beard, girls. And Caroline immediately went, but you're not about to die, are you? (laughs) Like, well, no, I I hope not. (laughs) I don't think that's what that means. But she gets it. I mean, the gray hairs are a symbol of something, and it's not getting younger. You have a physical deterioration that's taking place. And yet, Paul says in another place in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart because our outer self, though it's wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He is slowly bringing about this new life. 
yeah, my body is slowly getting less and less, you know, healthy and virile. And yet, I don't want to go backward. I don't want to trade what I have now for what I had then. I may be a little slower, but when I go to the text, the Bible now, I'm reading something I've read before. When I go and I think about the love that God has for me, I'm bringing that, um, that, that concept of love, I'm bringing with me that much more life experience, and I'm that much more amazed that He would love something like me. Over time, as a church, when we together are living this life, and I think about here, Hope Church is about seven years old, that we've got this little fledgling community life together, and yet, even as young as it is, it's sweet, and it's getting sweeter. He is doing a work, and He has promised to bring it to completion. And that, that promise, that guarantee that no matter how bad you are at this, no matter how infrequently you engage in this, if you're really His, if He has started that good work in you, if you've believed, He will bring it to completion. That whatever the ups and downs are, you know that you're going to a place. And that place is exactly what Psalm 23 sort of ends with. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He says that. And he says that even though he goes through a valley of shadow of death. And he says that even though he's got to eat with snarling enemies all around him. He says it because he knows it. Paul can sing in a prison because even though he's had the high highs of being called by God and sent to this place in Macedonia and seeing these people come to Christ and watch this little girl get a demon cast out of her. He's now going through the low, low of being beaten and shamed and stripped, imprisoned. And yet, it's the same road with the same conclusion that God, who has begun this work in the Apostle Paul, is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That that, that servant mentality, when he's, he introduces himself in Philippians 1-1, is being a servant of Christ Jesus. It's this irrevocable thing. That word servant, and, and if you read the ESV Bible, you'll see a lot of footnotes. Whenever that word servant comes up, they'll give you a little footnote. And they're saying that word is doulos. It's a, it's a word that means like bond servant. It is, it's like slave, but it's not maybe our understanding of like 1800s American slavery. It harkens back to an Old Testament concept of slavery where in Deuteronomy, if somebody was so hard up that they became your slave and you treated them with all the laws that God had given to masters for slaves and they just decided that, hey, uh, Deuteronomy 15, 16 and 17, if he says to you, I will not go from you. This is your slavery, your time of slavery is completed and the slave says to the master, I'm not, I'm not leaving because he loves you and he loves your household. He's well off with you. Then, oof, you ready? You shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It's saying that there is a point at which you can choose to be the, the slave forever, meaning that this guy is so great that anything in your house is worth doing. Rather than being free and being away from you, I'd rather be a slave and in your home. And Paul introduces himself in all these letters as this sort of doulos. When I was in student ministry growing up, 
And it was kind of like at the time, maybe it's not this way anymore, it was kind of like a woohoo, you know, if a, a boy got an earring. It was like a thing. I'm old enough, I have gray hairs. It was a thing when a little, like a, a kid boy got an earring. And there was this one kid who's a really good kid named Philip Ravel. Sorry if this matters. He'll never know that I said this. But, but he, he got an earring, and we were all like, woohoo, you know, like gauges, like he was a skater or something. But then he pulled out this verse. No. No, I got, I got this earring because I'm a doulos, man. I'm a slave to Christ. It was like this amazing judo move where he was able to say, you know, this thing that everybody thinks is so like edgy and rugged. No, it's not. I'm a Christian. I'm more Christian than you are with your morality or whatever. That's what Paul's saying, though. He's saying that he has taken a permanent step. He's rejoicing that God has committed himself to an irrevocable process. But he's also saying that he has put himself into this category that he can't leave, that he is God's doulos, his, his slave. Now, that can be very encouraging, but it can also be very scary. Because when you become his, you really do actually become his. It's like going down a water slide. You choose to do that. But really, your only choice is that first step. Once you've taken that step, now the water slide takes over. It's like joining the military. You, you have to make that choice. Now, once you make that choice, they make all the rest of the choices. When you become his, you really are his. And that's beautiful, but it's also irrevocable. It's also scary. So how do you become happy about this, this reason for your joy? How does joy erupt from this concept? Well, you get to know this one that you are permanently attached to. Paul is modeling for us a lifestyle of prayer. You come to church, we're going to teach you to read the Bible and to pray. But why? What is he talking about with this prayer? He's talking about it constantly in this just couple of verses. Verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. That's talking about prayer. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He's praying all the time. And it means that becoming his is kind of like becoming his. It's like a marriage relationship. It becomes a permanent change where you actually become his. And now he's with you. It says in Hebrews 13, 5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's kind of weird to put money next to this concept, this promise. But he's saying, don't let your life be about happiness in anything else. Be content with the thing that you do have. And what is it that you do have? Him. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And there's a part where you think like, oh, thank you, Lord. If you're in a hard situation, you say, yes, thank you, Lord, that you will never leave me nor forsake me. That in my sin, in the consequences of my sin, in my just hardship, 
It's not a sin. It's just a hard thing that's happening to me. Difficult, painful circumstances going on. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you're never going to leave me, that you're not going to forsake me. Oh, amen. And then, by his grace, things start to get a little bit better. And you think to yourself, is he still here? We had the air conditioning go out a little while ago. It was a warm time. The, the heat was rising at our little home. And so we had the air conditioning guy come and fix it. It was great. I was stressed out because he let me know after he got there that it was an extra however much per 15 minutes for diagnosis. And I was like, okay, then quit talking to me. Go, <laughs> go quickly. Get this done. Get off the clock, you know. But he fixed it. He, he made our air conditioner work again. I could feel the cold air blowing out of the vents. Oh, wow, great. Now imagine if that air conditioning guy was like, oh, yeah, you're welcome. No, yeah, thank you. No, you're welcome. I paid, right? Yep, yep, you're good. We're done. Awesome. And then he just goes into the living room and sits down. That'd be weird. You'd have to figure out how to get him out because the thing you needed him for, he's done. So why is he still here? You can have that kind of concept. I think a lot of Christians do. It's this idea that I needed him. I was really lonely. I needed him. I was addicted. I needed him. Like they were telling me about my sin, I started to understand it. I was under conviction. I knew that I was condemned before God. I needed him. And then he saved me. And then he forgave me. And now he's still here. I'd really rather get back to the things that were making me happy, and and yet he's he's still with me, he's still here. What do you do with a God that refuses to leave? His salvation isn't an air conditioning repairman that's just coming to turn down the heat for you. His salvation is an engagement. His salvation is the beginning of a relationship where he is teaching you Not just that he's good enough to get you through your hardship. He's teaching you that he is good enough to be the object of your affection. Listen, if you want to understand your problems with joy and why joy doesn't overflow in your life, good times are bad, that's it. That's your reason. Is he your joy? If your joy comes from anything else, it's going to go up and it's going to go down. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. And then a lot of times the downs are going to be lower than the ups until eventually it just skids out entirely and you have to find some other thing that can hopefully promise some level of joy. So good is the Christian life that God, who comes in because you need him, immediately then establishes himself, not only as your Savior, but as your joy unbelievable quote from a guy C.S. Lewis. He's telling a, an analogy he got from a guy named George MacDonald. Yada, yada. Here's what it says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. I probably do this illustration annually. I should do it more often. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in and he's going to rebuild that house. And at first, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite, uh, he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. 
He intends to come and live in it himself. Listen, you may not be a Christian. I hope there's lots of people that come to Hope Church that are exploring Christianity. Great. Come to that class. It's going to be awesome. If you're exploring Christianity, get ready. But if you are a believer, you are saying that you have committed to this Lord, that he has brought into your life salvation. But he has also, with that salvation, brought into your life himself. And the promise of Scripture is that if he will be your joy, if you will look to him for your life, not just your salvation, but your daily life, you will find him to be good, really, really good, unchangeably good and incomparably good, better than anything else. But you're going to have to train yourself to it. You're going to have to train your appetites to it because we're broken. If you really start reading through Scripture, you'll see that the big problem that we have, it talks about it in Jeremiah, I think, it's not just that we don't worship the Lord well, it's that we go to these broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you hear the, the concept of idolatry in Scripture, it's the idea that you would go to anything else to find your satisfaction and your security, anything else to find your joy. And that's what our hearts, that's why they're broken. That's what they do constantly is they wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Once you become a Christian, you still have those appetites that have to get reworked, have to get submitted, have to get crucified. So that you taste and see that he is good. And in tasting, you continue to taste and see that he is good until his, your affection for him becomes your dominant affection in your heart. And when that happens, joy, joy, this holy God, this loving God that was so angry with death itself. It says in John eleven thirty three. 33, I don't know if you listened to it or not, I committed you um, uh, Tim Keller's sermon right after 9-11, uh, way back in 2001, like right after 9-11 happened in New York, he preached this sermon and he talked about how Christ had anger towards death. We don't think of it that way, but it says in John eleven thirty three, 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, he's talking about Martha, this is Jesus coming to the tomb of a dead man named Lazarus and his, the dead man's sisters, Mary and Martha, are there and Mary is, is weeping and the Jews who, who came with Mary are also weeping. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, Keller goes out of his way to say that that is a bad translation of that verse. But it's a bad translation because the translators are kind of nervous to say what it really says. What it really says is that he bellowed with anger. That Christ, like a warrior, came to defeat death. And that when he saw it, when he looked right at it, he bellowed with anger. So great, so loving, so severe, so holy is this God. And he wants you. He's promised to give you joy to bring you through death and bring you to joy. Won't you come? That's not just a, an invitation for people to come to Christ. Come to Christ. 
He is that good. I would love to keep talking to you about the way in which um, these kind of options for self-fulfillment are not going to work out for you. They can't. The only thing that can is something outside of yourself that gives you meaning and gives you a meaning as high and beautiful as love. That can only be found in Christ. I'd love to communicate that to you. Please give me the option. But if you're a believer, I'm asking you, are you willing to give all these other things up in order to find your joy in Him? Doing that will be a taking every thought captive kind of work. Lloyd-Jones, he talks about in this book, uh, Spiritual Depression. He's talking about why we don't have joy. And he gives us kind of the main idea, the main medicine that he's going to use to fix all these different maladies is the gospel. He says it this way. The main art in the manner of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You have to take the gospel and apply it to yourself. You have to remember, he's better. You have to remember, he had to save me because my heart chose and chooses what can never satisfy. You have to preach this gospel and you have to do what Paul's doing here as he's praying. Now, I'd love to continue teaching you about prayer. I will. Keep coming to Hope Church. We're going to talk about it all the time. But a simple acronym that can give your prayers some structure The best thing to do is pray the Lord's Prayer and pray it slowly and use each phrase as kind of a jumping off point to pray about the concept in that phrase. That's best. But if you don't want to do that, a way that you can do, like an acronym that a lot of people use is ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's one of the books in the New Testament. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Not very clear, big words. The idea is you begin your prayers by adoring the Lord that the beginning of your prayer would be attempting to write your heart when it comes to him. Adoring and then confessing that there's been other things you've gone to for your joy. And it can be malicious stuff like slander, but it can also be just straight up idolatrous stuff like lust. Examining your heart. And then, T, thanksgiving. Taking a moment to just... Overwhelm yourself with the joy of being forgiven for all those things you just confessed by this absolutely loving God. And then, of course, supplication. Once you've righted your heart before the Lord, then to bring to him the stuff that you you probably initially wanted to pray to him about. But as you spend time with him, as you get to know him, as you get to see him, you realize that he's not just somebody who can fix your damnation problem. He is the only thing worth loving and seeing in this universe. And that knowing him and seeing him and rejoicing in him is going to fill you with a love and a joy that will overflow. It will spurt out of you like a fire hose and just cover the world in his goodness and joy. Keep coming. We're going to keep walking. We're going to keep seeing what Paul and Timothy have to say to us about this joy. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask this morning that in your kindness and in your love you would make this gospel clear to us that it would just overwhelm our hearts, not because of some sort of like social pressure, not because of the beauty of the music, not even because of the beauty of your, your scriptures, Lord, but that it would overwhelm us because of the beauty of your person, the beauty of who Christ is, the love that he's shown us, the salvation that he's provided for us at the cost that it cost him to, to provide it for us, Lord. Please give us that joy. And as we rejoice, Lord, draw people to yourself. We love you. In your holy name we pray.
Amen.